Welcome to the Conversion Tracking Playbook, where we share how to overcome tracking challenges that e-commerce brands face today and real-world examples of transforming data into insights. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Conversion Tracking Playbook. I'm your host, Brad Redding, and I have a special guest today, Maurice from Disruptive Digital. Can you give everyone a quick uh, background on yourself and we'll jump right in and start extracting some of those insights that you have for everyone? Yeah, hi, Brad. Uh, my name is Maurice. Uh, like you said, I am one of the co-founders of Disruptive Digital. We are a performance marketing agency primarily focused on helping clients acquire customers through paid social, primarily Facebook. The types of accounts that we typically work with are investing anywhere from the low end of $50,000 a month to the high end of $2 million a month. And our approach is really to think through holistic media buying, which means not just focusing on what happens in the ad account, but also understanding uh, the data components of how those um, impacts of what you're putting into the ad system is impacting your website. You know, we also do creative, so user-generated content that is meant to drive sales. And then we also help with conversion rate optimization when it comes to helping clients uh, essentially make sure that their websites are built to sell their products or services. Yeah. Awesome. Well, everyone listening, you're in for a treat. You're going to get some really deep insights and expertise here. I first came across uh, Maurice and some of his content. Maybe about a year ago, you'd shared a deep dive on Shopify tracking and obviously around the Facebook pixel pre-post iOS and then got connected with you on LinkedIn. And the amount of deep dive and the, the educational content that you share on LinkedIn is honestly, it's not the norm today. I feel like there's a lot of just... Uh, I don't know what you want to call it, but the you know you're going to quickly scroll through. So your content deep dives they're very tactical around obviously Facebook advertising, content creative testing, TikTok exploration, et cetera, et cetera. And I think everyone listening to this episode will can get a lot of value out of that. So thanks for sharing so much on LinkedIn and on your blog and for hopping on. Let's start there. So just where again you have that unique presence of. Those, the deep dives on LinkedIn, whether it's your creative testing process or it's doing a deep dive on tracking issues or whatever it might be, where does the inspiration come from? Are you just taking what you're learning with working with your customers and essentially packaging that up into a share on LinkedIn or is it somewhere else? Yeah, a little bit. I think what's been interesting is, you know, before starting this agency with my partner, we both worked at Facebook. I was there for about five years and the way that I kind of like to describe that part of my career versus where I am now is it was kind of like going to college. And if you think about when you're in college, you're really focused on the sort of theoretical application versus actually applying the work. And so because I was working with, you know, a lot of clients that were using our tools and I was the one who had to kind of go to market and explain why these things worked. For me, what I realized was when I left, it's not just important to kind of like do the work, but also to understand why it works and the mechanics behind it. Because if you can understand the components and the philosophies of how something was built by these tools, you can better apply them to your own business and get more out of them from a results perspective. And so the way that I try and share content is kind of bridging that gap between the sort of theoretical components of the way that I used to work at Facebook and the practical components of how I work with my clients right now in terms of helping people understand, hey, it's not just like, look at this cool ad that I made, or, you know, here's like the great results that we got for our client. It's more so understanding the why behind it, because that's going to help you as a business be able to apply that to your own business to be able to succeed further. Yeah, nice. All right. So 
let's start going back a couple of years with your experience working at Facebook. And obviously at this point, everyone is likely sick of hearing the term iOS and anything around that. But a couple episodes ago, I, I spoke with someone on this pod, Andrew, where we went deep into iOS and his before and after thoughts on, well, actually, I don't really think it was it made as big of an impact as what we as an industry were are making out to be in terms of performance. So I'm curious with your deep expertise pre post Facebook and everything you've been doing today in your agency working with customers, do you feel like the impacts that have been out there, was it as big as it was made out to be with just the device sharing info? So before the iOS updates happened, I personally thought it was going to be significantly harmful for a lot of brands. And the way that I kind of looked at it was the bigger the brand was, the more transactions that you had, the less likely you were to be impacted by this update. And the smaller brands, you know, the ones who built themselves on the back of these platforms were going to be more likely to be impacted uh, because they have less data to work with. And so when this actually hit, it was, I think, worse than I actually thought it was going to be. So it actually exceeded my expectations in terms of the harm that it created for a number of brands. There were some that were okay, and I'll explain why that is in a second. However, what I will say is it's been about a year and a half since that update hit, and we've seen significant improvements in the optimization systems that tools like Facebook have put out that have helped offset some of those challenges in performance. So we're out of the worst period possible. We're still not near where we were you know, a year and a half ago when this first hit, but we are getting better. And I will say the other component that's happened is tools like Elevar have helped clients essentially become better because we've discovered that there were some challenges with the Shopify integration, which we can get into later in this podcast, that impacted efficiencies for a lot of our advertisers. So I'll pause there for a second. There's a lot of different directions we can go in terms of why it was worse for some advertisers than others. If we were to summarize it, if you were potentially a larger brand or a longer history where you had just more data availability, weren't necessarily built just on the back of Facebook, the impact wasn't as much. If you were a smaller brand, only been around for maybe a year or two before iOS hit, built primarily on the back of Facebook advertising, those saw the most significant impacts. Yeah, because at the end of the day, the way that these systems work, all of them, but Facebook does it better than anybody else, is the more data that you give the ad platform, the better that that platform, in particular, in this case, Facebook, is going to be at finding the next customer, right? So if you get 100 sales, let's just say, right, in the course of a day, and Facebook sees those 100 sales, it can look at all the characteristics of those people that converted and find the next consumer that looks like those 100 people, right? But if all of a sudden the next day, you go from 100 conversions to 50 because the visibility isn't there, it's going to be harder for Facebook to be as confident that it can find that 51st person. It's easier to find the 101st person when you have you know, all of those profiles before than it is to find the 51st person. And so what happens is that if you are an advertiser that has a lot of transactions, it's not about how much money you're making per customer, it's about how much transactions you're getting. So if you're an advertiser that's getting thousands of conversions it's not as big of a deal to go from 1,000 conversions to 500 conversions that Facebook can recognize. Your reporting might be off, but Facebook still has enough data to be able to optimize to find the next person. But if you're going from 10 conversions to 5, it's going to be significantly harder for Facebook to find that next conversion with confidence. So the thing that's important to understand here is that advertisers that have a lot more data were able to survive 
through this because Facebook still had enough to work with. Even though it wasn't as good as it was maybe a year and a half prior, they were in a better position than the people that had less data because of the fact that you know it was cut in half. Yeah, that's good. Good to know. It makes sense. What about audiences? So with just audience data, audience availability, and what we can do on Safari or WebKit browsers or just iOS on an iPhone or any browser on an iOS, what's the pre-post difference when it comes to audiences? Have you seen any big differences, whether it's just generally marketing pools, et cetera? Yeah. So one of the things that shifted for us in the way that we work with advertisers now is prior to iOS 14, we used to have more of a segmented funnel. Right. So we would have top of the funnel people that haven't necessarily been to your website or interacted with your content. We used to have people that maybe interacted with your content or viewed your video. And then we would have people that visited your website. And if you had enough of an audience pool in that site visitors, you might have even segmented it further. However, if you think about it again, right? If now all of a sudden Facebook or these other platforms are only recognizing 50% of your audience that's coming through, your retargeting pool is going to be half. So what ends up happening is, is it's kind of like this effect where you have to spend half as much because you don't want to hit the same people twice. And then secondarily to that, if you're getting half as many people, you're going to get half as many conversions. So you might not even have enough data for the system to work effectively. And so for 99% of our advertisers, the vast majority of our advertisers, except in certain edge cases, we've actually foregone retargeting completely. And instead, we focus on the top of the funnel to kind of hit those people because even if you're not necessarily explicitly retargeting the user, Facebook is still going to retarget those users in those larger pools. So we've actually taken an even more simplified approach to the way that we're going after our audiences. And what's interesting is if you think about it, Facebook just rolled out a new solution called Advantage Plus Shopping, which is built on a completely new model. And in that instance, you can actually retarget. But the idea with those programs is, you just have one campaign that Facebook runs against with one audience. You can signify who your remarketing pool is, but they're basically saying the same thing that we've been saying for the last year, which is give us your budget and we'll figure it out for you. You don't need to explicitly retarget these people. Yeah. Humans, you go away. Stop telling us how to do things. Let us just figure it out. Okay. Exactly. That's interesting. So you're essentially, just to make sure I'm clear, no remarketing campaign specifically. It is, you're treating everyone like the same. So how does that impact creative are you whether it's like visual creative video creative written creative copy etc are you testing those or are you again just letting facebook do its thing and uploading a bunch of variations and using chat gpt to come up with the variations whatever you might be doing yeah so for us the way that we think about creative is there's essentially three levers that we try and focus on to help our clients scale and reach more users and the reason why i mentioned three levers is because it allows us to get as many permutations as possible by working smarter, not harder. So what are those three levers? The first lever that we have is what we call the barriers and motivators of why somebody might buy a product, right? So for example, let's say that you're selling a dog food, pet food, right? And it's fresh food, right? One reason why somebody might buy is because they want healthier food for their dog. Another person might want to buy because they want a more premium product, right? And so you're going to come up with different angles to reach those people with those two elements, right? And you're going to get two different types of consumers in the door. The second element is around the what we call hooks. So once you have the idea of the motivator and barrier, you need to have an opening visual that's going to get somebody interested in buying that product. And so, you know, you might end up seeing that having the dog eat the food is a really good hook. 
And then you might also see that testing, having the, the human put the food into a bowl is also going to work really well. So you test different visuals to kind of pull somebody in. And then the last component that works really well is what we call demographic features of basically putting in different types of heroes or, or characters into those ads, right? And so with the dog example, it might be putting a, a poodle in one example and then a German shepherd in another ad, and you're going to get two different types of dog owners. But even from a human element, right, if you're selling cosmetics, you might be selling foundation. And if you have a darker shade, you put in somebody that's of a you know more ethnic background versus somebody that's white, you're going to bring in two different types of customers. And so basically by putting those three things together, it allows you to get a large scale of different types of consumers that you can get in. What's important to know is I think a lot of advertisers sometimes will just throw a bunch of things at the wall to see what sticks. And in reality, when we take this approach, we'll go in and every week or every other week, depending on the client, we will launch three to five ads that follow this hypothesis of saying, okay, what are the opening hooks that we're going to put in? Try and find that winner. And then the next week we'll iterate on it and say like, how do we expand on what works to get the next step? So I think it's important to really be methodical about what you're testing and understand how do you start to think through different variations that are going to be uniquely different to bring in different people. But also you're kind of going in with this methodology to allow you to test for different consumers and and allow for scale. And are you still letting Facebook somewhat do its thing of in terms of targeting where you are creating the poodle versus German shepherd and you're not you're not really going deep into definitions and just let Facebook handle it for you? Yes. But I think what's interesting, and this is the important thing, right? You have to let your creative dictate the targeting. And so here's a perfect example. I mentioned the example of the foundation earlier, right? Like uh, women's makeup. If you were to take, you know, the same ad featuring a black woman and a white woman, everything is exactly the same. The opening hook is the same. The motivator is the same. The only difference is who's being featured in it. And you put them both in the same campaign. You might have a situation where Facebook is going to totally favor, let's say, the white woman because that's going to drive a more cost-efficient sale. So the way that you do the targeting is by saying, hey, anybody that's going to go for this darker foundation, we're going to run with this budget. And anybody that's going for the white woman, we're going to put with a separate budget. And so then Facebook can go after these two unique audiences. So it's important when you are creating new creative for different audiences to separate them out explicitly to reach those different segments. Otherwise, what's going to happen is Facebook might just favor you know, one ad over the other, and you're never giving that breathing room to that other audience to be able to reach. There's nuances to it. It depends on the situation. But I think what's important to know is creative is going to dictate the targeting, and it will be dictating the targeting. We ran this, like I said, for you know this foundation that went towards the exact same audience of you know all women in the United States. And the targeting was exactly the same. The product page was exactly the same. The creative was exactly the same. Everything was the same. The only difference was who was featured in the ad. And what was interesting was that the woman that was, uh, you know, the black woman sold three times as many shades of darker foundation as the white woman. And so it just shows that Facebook was able to find the users who were most likely to resonate with this ad without us having to put in any other sort of uh, guardrails in place for them to do that. And you just basically split the budget. Correct. Essentially. Yeah. That's probably, it seems like a very simple change. Do you feel like a majority of advertisers are doing this today? Or do you think this is still a concept that people are still trying to test their way into and, and just haven't caught up yet? I think the more advanced advertisers are doing it, but there is still a lot of headroom. And like that was a really easy illustrative example to understand. But you can even understand, for example, how, you know, if you're apparel, like having different body shapes can impact who's going to come in. 
So I would say, you know, I think a lot of the times, like, there's this idea that, you know, diversity is important, but it's actually good business too, right? Like, you're going to bring in different types of users by featuring different types of users. And so even if it doesn't look surface level, like it can apply to your business by featuring different types of people in your ads and not just getting the same person over and over and over again, you're going to start to unlock new audiences. So I think the more advanced advertisers realize this, but there's a lot of opportunity for, I would say probably even the more traditional brands to be able to take on this approach and see really good success. And you mentioned you, you the product page and the funnel, the onsite funnel was the same was that because the onsite funnel, so just think the product page where the imagery, there was mixed imagery, so it was easy to recognize? Or do you feel like, man, I think we could squeeze even more out of these different campaigns because we didn't personalize the experience from the ad creative to the landing page to the bottom of the funnel, email retargeting, et cetera? Absolutely, yeah. I think there was a, a lot of opportunity to kind of take it a step further, but we were just proving that this creative could work, Right. The next step, realistically, and I mentioned this earlier, was the idea of the website experience impacting performance. All of the models that were featured on that product page were for the general market, you know, white female. You can imagine how much stronger the performance could have been had the landing page experience been tied to the ad, right? And for us, what we always tell our clients is you need to follow the three C's of landing page optimization, which is continuity, content, and call to action. And continuity is probably the most important part. If you're going to see an ad for you know a black woman that's selling this product, you want to see that same person featured on the next page to make sure that you're in the right place, right? Like this is actually the product for me. So all the more so had we tested that, we probably would have even seen better results. And by the way, if you're listening, it's not that difficult to personalize that. If you are just using Google Optimize, let alone any paid optimization tool, have your targeting, just target your UTM campaign parameter. It'll persist across a session I've seen this done so many times that I can almost guarantee it's a winner. We saw this tested with influencers. Same thing, keeping the, if the ad was Snoop Dogg and then you go to a landing page and make sure it's Snoop Dogg and the coupon code Snoop Dogg and et cetera, et cetera. But you can use Google Optimize, UTM parameter equals that campaign, swap out your imagery, whatever you want to do on a landing page, and then just test it, like test and validate it before you potentially invest all into photography, et cetera. I'm going to go back to what you mentioned with uh, three marketing audiences and obviously the impact on the post iOS is, have you seen either directly or indirectly the cookie expiration? So if you think about Safari and WebKit, where if you are, again, on an iPhone, which majority of brands are seeing traffic come in from there and someone's coming from Facebook or a Facebook ad, we know that Safari and, and just WebKit, the WebKit in general browser is they're forcing that 24-hour expiration, which essentially means if someone clicked on a prospecting ad, came back 25 hours later in the same browser, potentially just went to their Safari browser on their phone and reloaded, their cookies reset and it's technically to Facebook or Google or other channels to say new user because a user is tied to a device because they're not logged in. Has that nuance of tracking, is that too nuanced to really be able to pick apart? Yeah, we've seen an impact from that and that's part of why we're not trying to split prospecting, re- remarketing, et cetera, or... Just what are your other just general thoughts on that? So I would say no at a high level. I, I think for me, like the way that I've seen the biggest impact is still the iOS updates. And kudos to, to Facebook and some of these other platforms for kind of realizing this earlier on. We've known the cookies have, are going to be deprecated for a long time. And even while we speak about this, you know, Google is still delaying what they're going to be doing in Chrome, right? For me, the reason why it's been less of a, a challenge is because what Facebook has done and now a bunch of other platforms have kind of followed is moving from cookies for tracking to server-side integrations for tracking like what Elevar does. Because Facebook has such a strong identity layer, 
it hasn't necessarily been a challenge in terms of the results that we need to be able to drive for customers. You know, it is possible, let's say that has impacted retargeting, but at the end of the day, I think what's more important is just making sure that we're getting the data that we need that's important, which is the transaction to be able to help those systems be able to drive a sale. And so if Facebook is able to see who bought and they're getting it from the server data, that's what is going to be the most important. The reason why the Apple update has been so detrimental to performance, whereas this cookie deprecation hasn't, is because the server integrations, you know, like Conversions API that Facebook has, hasn't been impacted. That's what the server integration is meant to resolve. The Apple update, though, basically was designed to not allow those server integrations to work. And so without having cookies and without having server integrations be allowed, that entire data pipeline is cut off from Apple. And as a result, that's been significantly more detrimental than any sort of cookie deprecation could be. Yeah, this is one of those nuances that I'm always trying to triangulate different experts' feedback because when we talk just Facebook... Even with our integration, we're sending an external ID, which is a hardened one-year user identifier, so it's not susceptible. It's hardened to these tracker, 24-hour tracker link expirations. But the FBP and the FBC parameters, so FBP, Facebook, the SDK is still setting those cookies. So if you come in with an FB click ID and a query parameter, we're just talking Elevar. We're, we're still storing that and, and passing that in our conversions API, but that's also setting the FBC cookie, Facebook is sending FBP cookie all the time that, again, they want that as part of their user matching and their deduplication. I'm always wondering, like, how long are they essentially saying, well, we're now going to prioritize external ID and FBP since we know it's, it has that 24-hour expiration for most customers that we're, we're going to deprioritize that versus three years ago. It was probably their main way of trying to connect the different users across different devices, et cetera. But anyways... The second point I want to come back to when we're talking audiences, something that we're both exploring and also seeing customers explore is with BigQuery, obviously the transition to GA4 and what possibilities you now have with BigQuery, where now you have dynamic audience creation that you can leverage BigQuery and dynamically spin up these machine learning driven audiences for either audiences that you might target, or I don't know if you shared this or I read elsewhere, but audiences to exclude as well. Where do you see that? Because that seems like maybe this is a non-Facebook, maybe this is Google or potentially other platforms where you have these audiences to include, exclude or, or target or potentially have a bigger budget towards. Where do you think the future lives with that type of model where, again, you have your data warehouse, you can add all this technology on top of this data to create these dynamic audiences that can be synced right away and you can include, exclude. Is there a future for that in, in paid? Yeah, for sure. We use dynamic audiences with all of our advertisers. And I would say our approach to targeting is realistically, how do we make sure that the systems are getting the inputs that they don't have access to that are going to get us better customers? I think the way to think about targeting moving forward is not necessarily, you know, this interest audience is going to get me a cheaper CPA or this lookalike is going to get me a cheaper CPA. And instead saying, how do I start to, you know, the, these systems are really good at getting you exactly what you want. The computers are going to do much better at getting you exactly what you want than you can based on the inputs that you put in. But it's not good at getting you the stuff that it can see. So let me give you an example, right? If you are an advertiser that has a subscription service and you don't pay until, let's say, 30 days later, Facebook or Google is going to be really good at getting you that trial on day one but they're not going to be able to recognize who's a good customer 30 days later unless you give them those inputs or put the targeting parameters in place 
that's going to allow them to understand who makes a good customer. And that's where dynamic audiences are really helpful. So for example, one of the things that we have been doing with one of our advertisers that does subscriptions is they have a list of all of their sort of uh, low quality customers, people that maybe were fraudulent or did chargebacks, anybody that maybe wasn't going to be valuable to business. When those customers converted, they came in really cheap for the brand. And so Facebook looks at this or Google might look at this and go, wow, look at how great this customer is that we got you for so cheap. But they don't know that that's a bad customer. And so what we'll do is then we'll take that dynamic audience and build a lookalike of it. Because again, Facebook is really good and Google is really good at like taking those similar characteristics and finding other people similar to them. We'll take that and then exclude those types of users from our buys to make sure that we're getting the best customers possible. Now, again, it might impact the efficiencies that we're getting front end, but we know that it's going to lead to better customers in the back end. That's one example. Translate more profit. <laughs> exactly. Another example could be just, you know, having a dynamic list of people that have bought from us so that way that we don't have to hit them again with another ad and start to go after a new user. So dynamic audiences are super important to make sure that we're constantly getting the most efficient audiences as possible. But I would say from a targeting perspective, it's really important that you're letting these systems do the work and only using them to put in the inputs that they can't actually see. So like predicted LTV or correct. what are some other real metrics that you've used or inputs that you've used to help with this particular tactic? So there's different ways that you can do it. Every business is going to be different. Yeah. The way that I, I like to describe it is you have signals that you know are going to lead to good customers and bad customers. Use those to build your list. At the end of the day, this is where I think the human element comes in and how you have to leverage your data, Right. Every business is going to be different in terms of those signals. You know, that's where you would have an analyst kind of look at the data and say, this is the customer cut that we should use to either exclude from our buys, or maybe we build a lookalike against it to try and find the right types of customers. So every business is going to be different. Yeah. Just, I think that last three minutes is gold. I don't think majority of people are leveraging Facebook or Google that again, have these big budgets. They're probably not leveraging as much. And this year that might take you from five to 10% profitability to 20 plus. I'm going to move on to another topic here, your Facebook experience. And you mentioned a little bit in the beginning in terms of the data you send to Facebook and the importance of that. What's your, we might've covered it already, but just your general point of view on Facebook pixel conversion tracking, signal strength, uh, necessary for optimization. If you're just to summarize your perspective, what, what is that? The data that Facebook receives and the amount of data that Facebook receives, that signal fidelity is the most important element to driving success on the platform. and. One of the things that always bothered me before the iOS update hit, and even like during when the update hit, was there was a lot of people saying, this is why creative matters and this is more important than ever. Creative always matter. If you had the best creative ever before the iOS update and then the iOS update hit, it wasn't going to save you from the fact that the flywheel and that optimization system that Facebook had was not going to be able to find the right people. And so... For me, we were always striving to try and get the best creative possible, but we knew that without having that high fidelity signal, we were never going to be able to help our clients succeed. And so one of the things that we realized was that we needed to try and figure out new ways to kind of improve that performance. And Conversions API was always that solution. What we didn't realize at the time, and I'm assuming we'll get into this in a second, was I think a lot of people look at the Conversions API as sort of like this light switch where it's on or off. And if you have it on, you're good. But in reality, it's more like a dimmer, right? Where you might have the light on, but the brightness might be set to 20%. And you need to make sure that you're getting it to 100%. And so 
when we had that realization, it really changed the game for us. And we were able to start to improve our client signals exponentially. And it led to our results going back to almost what they were like pre-iOS. CPMs came down because CPMs are impacted by how much signal Facebook gets. Everything got significantly better. And once we realized that, it made me a lot more confident that we could help our clients in a way that we didn't feel was possible for maybe the first six to nine months when this update had hit. So for me, data signal is the most important foundation. If that's not set up with the highest fidelity possible, you're leaving money on the table. So you went from, which was common post iOS, like Facebook is dead. We're going to test Snapchat and TikTok and all these other platforms and came back to... They were all impacted, but they were all impacted by it too. And that was another thing that always bothered me too. When people are like, this is why you need to diversify. Yeah, yeah, exactly. TikTok and Snapchat and every other channel has been just as impacted by the iOS update as anybody else. I mean, with the exception of search, because it's a web-based conversion and it's last click. Yeah. Everybody else that's an app-based ad platform has been impacted. The reason why Facebook looked like it got hurt the worst was because they were the best at it. So the ding that they felt was a lot worse than for these other platforms. All right. So I think we have time for about one more topic. We have creative testing process and the three pillars for success with paid media. You choose. Which one do you want to go down? What do you think is more uh, valuable for your listeners? Oh, man, that's a tough one. Put me on the spot here. Uh, <laughs> let's do the three pillars. I think the way you had this outlined, I think, is pretty strong. So let's do three pillars. Sure. Yeah. So I mentioned this earlier, uh, but when my partner and I left Facebook, what we had realized and the reason why we left is in order to be able to increase your growth on the Facebook ad platform, you can't just look at the media that you're running and try and target your way out of you know a better CPA. What we, instead, what we realized at the time, and this was four and a half years ago, was you need to think beyond what's going on in the ad platform. And for us, there were three pillars that were super important. It was data, it was creative, and then it was the web experience. And data speaks to what I mentioned earlier, which was that idea of the pipeline between the ad and the website, but it's also being able to understand and measure the attribution of what's actually driving the sale. Second is creative. So how do you build thumb-stopping creative that's going to get somebody to stop, click, and ultimately go to your website? And then the third component is the web experience. So even if you have an amazing piece of creative that gets me to click through to your website, if I go to that experience and I don't feel like I'm getting the information that I need to convert or the buying experience is convoluted, I'm going to abandon that site, especially on mobile where it's much harder to try and drive that sale. And so what we've focused on with our clients is making sure that we are doing the best that we can in those three pillars. And we're always testing to try and improve those because those are the areas where we have the most control over what happens. And if we're able to improve each of those levers, we're going to be able to improve results. So that's the approach that we've been taking with all of our clients. And uh, it's been really helpful. I think you know clients are really appreciative when you come to them and say like, hey, we should set up this post-purchase survey, for example, to understand why people are buying. Then we take that data and use it to build a new landing page that addresses those or tailor it to our creative to help make sure that we're getting those types of customers in the door. It's always really helpful to kind of see how those things can work together to drive better results in the long run. Yeah. When we were chatting before we started recording, we were talking through this a little bit. And you mentioned thinking through how email and potentially other parts of your digital marketing experience are going to impact Facebook advertising, Google advertising, which is your specialty. Can you elaborate a little bit on what you meant by that? How are you taking channels that you are not touching or really digging into? 
How are you taking that consideration into your process? Yeah, for sure. So I think one of the most important components is, especially after iOS 14, is that first-party data. And so we want to make sure that when somebody's visiting a landing page, they're getting the information that they need and they might not convert at that moment. And so for us, it's how do we make sure that we're capturing that data with an incentive that's going to get them to buy on that landing page? And so one of the examples of what we might do is, you know, with post-purchase surveys, like we'll also ask people like how long we think it took them to purchase because people are coming in through different devices and we might not have the identity. So we'll ask and try and understand like, you know, what compelled them to buy and how long it took them to buy. And then we can take that to help dictate maybe what the messaging is going to be in those emails or what that sequence should look like to get somebody to actually come through. That's one example. Another one that we've done, for example, is, you know, like card abandonment will work with advertisers to make sure that they have the right flows in place so that they don't have to rely on retargeting to get that user in. Because once you own that consumer's CRM data, you don't need to reach them with another ad. You can use your own media to be able to bring them in. And so for us, I think what's really important is how do we make sure that what we're doing is going to be incremental to the business versus taking credit for an order that would have maybe come in anyways and we didn't have to pay extra for it. If you were to benchmark or maybe track this individually across your customers, email subscription to conversion, what do you think a good number is? So out of 100 people that sign up for email or SMS, don't convert, what percentage of those 100 ultimately complete a purchase? What's a good benchmark for people to follow? Again, it varies based on the business, which is, I think, it's, it's, it's hard, right? Like we have accounts where we have, you know, a $500 AOV and the conversion rates are significantly lower. It's like a, you know, let's say a 1% conversion rate yeah. versus accounts where we have people that are, they don't even need to enter their email, right? Like we're getting them to sign up yeah. on that initial introduction to the brand. So I would say the best way to kind of look at this is to measure against yourself and make sure that you're improving. There is one tool that we've been using for benchmarking, and I know that they've just introduced Klaviyo benchmarks as part of it, which is uh, Varos, V-A-R-O-S. They've been fantastic, and the way that we use it is not necessarily to benchmark against our competitors, but more so to understand the trends of people's performances going up or down. So I would definitely recommend, if you're looking for some sort of a benchmarking software, that would be a good opportunity. But I would say... There's no hard and fast rules. Every business is going to be different. And the best competition is yourself. So always you know, measure against what you're doing to make sure that you're continuously improving. Yeah. I think every time we put benchmarks out ourselves, it's always been one of the most popular emails, feedback. How do we compare? Can you add this metric? Can you do this? Can you do that? So we know it's definitely something everyone wants and needs. I'll just wrap that up. Is that, do you feel like that's even a metric? That, is that a critical metric for you to track? So s- subscription to sign up? So email, SMS, subscription, and sign up, is that something that if someone's not tracking that today, that they really should? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially now, right, where you are have to rely a lot more on first-party data, it's super helpful. And, and I would say on top of that, you should always be trying to figure out how to improve that metric. And so, you know, regardless of what you're doing, like that email sign up to conversion is going to be super important. And if you're seeing like a really low conversion rate or things are down, it might just mean that you're getting low quality traffic in, right? Whereas you might have the opposite and you might be getting really good traffic in. So it's a good way to kind of assess, I think, if you're getting the right type of traffic in the door because not all clicks are good clicks. So like everything else, it's a good metric to try and improve and to help you increase your sales. Awesome. Well, this was great. Everyone listening got 40 minutes of just amazing insights. I know I marked at least five clips that I thought were just really, really strong insights. Maurice, thank you for coming on. How can people get in touch with you? You can reach out to me on not really using Twitter anymore. So 
you can reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm sure you'll put a link in the podcast or our website. I'm sure Brad will also put a link into the podcast. Those are probably the two best ways to connect with me. Awesome. No Twitter. So you're one of the, one of the few that have gone away from Twitter. Yes. And it coincidentally coincided with Elon coming on, but that wasn't the reason. I, okay. just, I just discovered that there's a difference in terms of the mentality of how people interact with you on Twitter than they do on LinkedIn. And yeah. I felt like my time was better spent in a more positive environment. <laughs> Believe it at that. All right, there's clip number six. All right, thanks, Maurice. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Did you enjoy today's episode? If so, we release two new episodes per week. So be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else that you subscribe and listen to your podcasts. I also have a favor to ask. I'd really appreciate if you could leave a comment or review so I can learn exactly how to improve future episodes for you. And last but not least, if you want to connect with me, find me on LinkedIn by searching Brad Redding at Elevar. That's E-L-E-V-A-R. Or you can DM me on Twitter. My handle is I am Brad Redding. I look forward to connecting with you. Thanks again.